Hi, and welcome to the October edition of the EVJ podcast. I'm your host, Rhiannon Morgan. Today we have an orthopaedic theme podcast for you. We're joined by Dr. Tim Parkin, who's discussing early detection of catastrophic limb fracture by MRI. And Dr. Sarah Plevin, who's joined us to talk about sesamoiditis and suspensory ligament branch injury in yearling thoroughbreds. Dr. Parkin is head of the WIPAS Centre at the University of Glasgow and is also a project collaborator for the Thoroughbred Health Network. Tim will be discussing his paper titled Can we use subchondral bone thickness on high-field magnetic resonance images to identify thoroughbred racehorses at risk of catastrophic lateral condylar fracture? And this can currently be found in the early view section on the EVJ website. Hi Tim, thanks for agreeing to chat with us about your paper today. Uh, this study has assessed the use of subchondral bone thickness measured on high field MR images to identify horses at risk of lateral condylar fracture of the third metacarpal bone in thoroughbred racehorses. So it's safe to say that all our listeners know that lateral condylar fractures are common causes of catastrophic limb fracture. And being able to reliably predict which horses will suffer from these would be, would be beneficial to the welfare of the sport. But could you tell us why you've decided to um, use this imaging modality, high field MRI, over, say, CT or low field standing MRI to investigate this association? Sure. I mean, to be truthful, this work is just a, a piece, one one bit of a, a much bigger project, an HBLB funded project that actually goes back to the mid 2000s, where we looked at, we were looking to identify pre-fracture geometric, structural and pathological changes in the bone that might be related to um, pre-fracture change. Um, and for all of the, to identify all of those, we actually put these bones through detailed post-mortem as they came into us, CT uh, in collaboration with Colorado State University with professors uh, McElwraith and, and Kauchak and through MRI uh, with um, Rachel Murray and Carolyn Tranquil at the AHT. So we actually, this is just one section of the big, much bigger study, and it just happens that this is the section that focuses on MRI, and as it happens, ended up turning up probably one of the more interesting findings in terms of our ability to identify potential cutoff or markers for horses that may be at greater risk of fractures. So there are other papers out there that deal with the CT aspect. There's other papers out there that deal with the uh, post-mortem aspects. Um, but this paper is purely related to MR. Uh, the reason we used high field, well, two things really. There have been uh, papers from the AHT group that talk about the equivalence of high field and low field. So we didn't really feel there was any benefit to doing low field. Um, High field is gold standard, so what we wanted to do was give ourselves the best chance of identifying anything significant on these bones. But the other thing really came down to logistics also. We were dealing with um, bones that were in isolation on their own, frozen and then defrosted for MR, uh, and it's simply a lot easier to lie a bone uh, in a high field MR than try and stand it up artificially in a, in a low field system as well. So there are two reasons really, but we felt that high field essentially gave us the best chance of identifying anything, if anything was there, that was associated with pre-fracture pathology. So what did you aim to achieve with this study? Um, what were your hypotheses? So the hypotheses were reasonably broad ranging, but essentially, as I 
suggested, we were looking to identify if there were any geometric uh, structural or pathological changes that might be identifiable on from bones or indeed from horses that had suffered uh, lateral condylar fractures of the uh, four cannon bone. Um, the hypothesis would, the, would be that the, there would be changes in the bones uh, of those that had sustained a fracture with bones from A, from the same horse, i.e. bones that were unfractured. Uh, so you might see more changes, whatever those changes might be, uh, in the bones that had sustained a fracture compared to those that hadn't sustained a fracture. But equally, um, comparing the horse itself, actually either of those bones from the fractured horse would be in some way different to uh, bones from horses that had died for totally unrelated reasons, so non-appendicular fracture or pathological reasons. So there was a group of horses that came off the racetrack that had suffered cardiovascular catastrophe or neck or back fracture following a fall, and they were our comparator group of horses, really, and we were expecting to see much less pre-fracture change in that particular group of animals. So how many fetlocks did you manage to include in the study and what were your inclusion criteria and how did you assess them? OK, so um, the archive of material actually goes back a number of years now and, and goes back to the start of my PhD, which was um, a while ago now. Ninety nine is when we started collecting bones uh, from the race course, limbs from the race course. And it was uh, all essentially from an HBLB PhD that was mine and then our first postdoc which continued the collection and we collected over that period something like 350 pairs of limbs uh, from horses that died on the race course that uh, had sustained distal limb fracture uh, distal limb being carpus or tarsus including uh, included and then further distal to that to that and I have to say, again, we've said it many times, the, the thanks that goes to the BHA or the Jockey Club, as it was, uh, vets who um, continued to collect limbs from us for us um, over a six and a half year period. And I think in the end, we missed about three pairs of legs in total. Uh, and we managed to collect 350 pairs of legs, did all the PMs. And then all those bones went into archive. And, and those are the bones that have been supplying the many studies that have, have followed on uh, from uh from that initial um, work. Um, there was one other set of bones that we collected, as I suggested, that were at, that was actually funded by uh, an internal grant from the University of Liverpool, which uh, we recognised sort of four or five years in that we wanted to collect a control set of bones from horses that hadn't suffered fractures. So we also then started collecting limbs from horses, as I said, that ended up with cardiovascular or uh, catastrophe or neck or back fractures from some of the race courses, um, mostly in our local area at the time. So in total, uh, we ended up with 47 bones uh, with uh, a four-limb lateral condylar fracture, uh, lateral condylar fracture of the third metacarpus, 47 contralateral bones from the same horses that hadn't had a fracture, and a total of 98 bones. So 49 horses contributed 98 bones, each horse con contributing two bones, obviously, um, from horses that had had cardiovascular catastrophe or neck or back fracture. Um, Interestingly, in, in the paper itself, you'll, and one of the reviewers picked this up, there's one bone missing from the contralateral group. And interestingly enough, that was a bone that was identified as having had a previous lateral condylar repair with a screw still in place. So obviously it couldn't go into MR. So that's one bone. So actually we MRI'd uh, 
46 of the contralateral bones rather than 47 of them. But it was interesting to see that that horse had had a, a previous lateral condylar fracture and then ended up being euthanized for a subsequent lateral condylar fracture in a different limb. So where did you take the measurements of subchondral bone thickness um, on the condyles? So we took a number of different locations across the uh, distal end of the uh, condyle. Uh, two locations really uh, midway between um, dorsal and palmar um, and then about a 35 degree angle into the palmar half of the uh, condyle. And if you imagine those two lines going medial to lateral across the condyle, then we selected seven sites uh, equidistant uh, across from medial to, um, sorry, um, uh, axial to abaxial across the condyle, um, ensuring that we also selected the two parasocial grooves, obviously, uh, as sites to image. Um, uh, and those were the, essentially the sites. So we had 14 sites in total, but there's, the paper itself refers only to the, the lateral parasocial grooves, that being the um, uh, area uh, that we found um, to be of most interest, as you might examine, uh, expect with respect to uh, lateral condylar fracture. Yeah, so my next question was going to be, what associations did you find between measurements and the likelihood of fracture? Is that basically the, the, the answer? Yeah, essentially. So we, we identified. So what we were looking for uh, on the MR study was we looked at cartilage and that sort of thing, but we didn't really. There was a lot of difficulty looking at cartilage, um, primarily because there's a lot of post fracture trauma. So you lose a lot of cartilage. So that was quite difficult. But then we so then we focused on subchondral slash trabecular bone deep to each of the 14 sites. And we were essentially looking at the depth of that dense subchondral bone. So how much essentially dense bone is built up in those particular uh, areas? And we identified that at one particular site in the lateral paras palmar lateral parasocial groove, essentially, there was significantly more dense subchondral slash trabecular bone um, in the bones that had sustained fracture compared to bones, the contralateral bones from the same horse, and also compared to than then compared to the horses that hadn't sustained fracture at all. So there was, if you look in the in the paper itself, there's quite a neat uh, graphic uh, that sort of displays the distribution of dense of depth of dense subchondral bone that shows that probably what is normal in the bones from uh, the horses with no fracture shows a reasonably nice peak and then a, a bit of a tail. And then to the other extent, there's the bones with lateral condylar fracture that clearly have a very different distribution and the bones, the contralateral bones are somewhere in between. They're sort of on the way to being bones that are waiting to fracture, if you like, but they're clearly different to the normal bones from horses without fracture as well. So we were able to identify as a clear difference in the profile of depth of dense subchondral bone at that particular site. And with a little bit of sort of um, manipulation and, and ROC curve analysis, um, we were able to identify what might be termed the optimal cutoff that you might sort of suggest uh, to use as a diagnostic tool. If if you were to say, okay, if you were to use this as a screening tool and you say, okay, if a horse has um, more than X amount of depth of dense subchondral bone at that particular site, then it's at risk of fracture. If it has less, then it's probably not at risk of fracture. And we identified a cutoff of being about quite precisely about for some reason 16 mil um, at that site um, of dent, dense 
uh, subchondral bone, that being the depth that uh, essentially suggested the horse was more likely to end up with a fracture than not. Um, essentially what it does, it gives us hope that um, we're able to identify this uh, change pre-fracture, pre-lateral condylar fracture. We might then be able to modify training regimes to um, modify uh, the accumulation of dense subchondral bone at, at that site, potentially bringing the horse back from uh, imminent fracture at that particular site. So the, the depth of the dense subchondral bone um, is directly associated with the increase in likelihood of fracture. So using MR images, how did you define dense subchondral bone and how did you differentiate this between dense and normal subchondral bone? Sure. So this comes back to this is really in the hands of the uh, people um, at the AHT. But from uh, from originally work they did on um, tarsi and carpi, what they uh, some of their their original work uh, looked at um, uh, what you see on MR in terms of pixel intensity, and then took some of the very same uh, bits of the bone, uh, whether it's carpus or tarsus, um, and correlated what they saw histologically in terms of density of the bone with um, the pixel intensity at the same site. So they've, they've uh, published on this before and they used the same, they've used the same method a number of times. And, and essentially, that's the same cutoff we used for this particular piece of work here. We were able to say, OK, we think there's a particular cutoff in terms of pixel intensity, which you can get from the uh, MR images, which we think uh, essentially delineated between uh, dense bone and non-dense bone, essentially. Okay, so you found an association between subchondral bone thickness and the lateral parasagittal groove and lateral condylar fracture. Were there any other concurrent injuries present, such as sesamoiditis or palmar osteochondral disease, that you think may have predisposed horses to this increase of chondral bone thickness or subsequent fracture? There, there were there were lots of other pathology uh, present in lots of the bones we looked at, and uh, I think we pay, published a paper on um, lateral condylar fractures and associated pathology. I think in uh, 2006, which gives the detail of all the pathology we identified for lots of the uh, lateral condylar fractures. Um, I think we at the time we didn't really identify that there were any strong associations between the other pathology and the and the risk of lateral condylar fracture. Um, I know there's been a lot of talk about palmar osteochondral uh, disease and that sort of thing at the moment. And certainly some of our early work suggested that actually pods may actually be in some way protective of lateral condylar fracture. We, we tended to identify them more frequently in bones that had suffered or in, in limbs that had suffered a different type of fracture, so maybe a P proximal phalangeal fracture or a uh, proximal sesamoid bone fracture rather than a lateral condylar fracture. And it got us thinking that actually perhaps those horses that end up with pod lesions, maybe those pod lesions prevent them from training and exercising to a full extent. And maybe that prevention of full blown exercise in some way prevents the buildup of this dense subchondral bone that then prevents the accumulation of damage that eventually results in lateral condylar fracture. So um, we didn't really find anything to summarize. We didn't really find anything that was positively associated with the outcome. But I think, you know, there are things in there that may actually partly explain why pod lesions are so common in some populations where there is 
significantly less lateral condylar fracture occurrence than, than other um, uh, populations. Um, I, th I think uh, certainly the detail on the degree of different types of pathology is in the 2006 paper that we that I talked about, and um, I think it would for us it was quite remarkable even in non-fractured bones uh, or the control bones, quite how much uh, and how varied a lot of the pathology was from the horses that we were getting off the racetrack. And we've got to remember, these are all horses that were actually racing when they died. Uh, it's not like they're a, a, a retired population or something like that. They were all um, racing at the time of euthanasia. So the study found um, changes were more pronounced in one of two forelimbs in an at-risk horse. Um, and it may not be a matter of chance as to which limb is first to sustain a fracture. So why do you believe this happens and what do you think causes it? That's a very good question. And we've thought about this for a long, long time. It, we, the obvious suggestions are that it's related to uh, whether horses train uh, in certain directions, using one leg more frequently as a lead leg, for example, um, I think I think the evidence of that is is pretty sparse. There's been some work from the states suggesting that you far more frequently, you know, where they race in far more frequently in the same direction, uh, where you have a, a differential in left and right fracture rates. But um, I think we we one what we didn't have from uh, this population consistently was an idea of uh, direction of training and, and, that, and that sort of thing, or indeed the surfaces they continually trained on. So I think it's a very difficult question to answer. Others have suggested that horses are handed in some way, so they might be left or right limbed, and they may in themselves prefer to be leading with a left or right leg, um, even if they're training in a, in a straight line rather than going around a corner. So it may be... Um, something along those lines as well but i think it's a it's an unanswered question at the moment it may be that one limb starts to become more pathologic if you like which in some way prevents the other limb from being so so it may just be a chance occurrence that one or other uh limb starts as the as the limb that it ends up being most likely to end up with a fracture um i, I it's one of those unanswered questions unfortunately i think so probably our most pertinent question of today, um, can these findings be directly translated into a clinical screening tool for use in low MR imaging systems? Well, I cover the, the if you're talking specifically about low field, I, I think the evidence is there that uh, low, is, low field is, is a very good proxy for what you see on high field. So I don't have mm -hmm. any concerns with respect to that. I think the, the more difficult thing to, and the things to recognise about this particular study is that this is a, a once uh, in time snapshot of what the bones were doing at the time of death. So it, it's um, it's quite difficult to be sure that these um, pre-fracture changes were uh, or how long they had been building up for. Um, and because of that, you, you can't be sure how close to fracture you're going to be able to eventual fracture. You're going to be able to detect them. Uh, so I think it is a difficult leap to take it uh, to suggest we'd be able to use these as screening tools at the moment. Um, however, I think it, what's important is that um, you could, it, it's perfectly feasible to use this sort of information in the clinic. Uh, um, and this is pointed out to me by Rachel Murray that, you know, actually one of the ways of um, perhaps uh, 
better honing in on the uh, population that you really want to test with this sort of uh, technology uh, is using obviously clinical acumen, not just using it as a, a broad screening tool, but actually use it for just the horses you have much greater suspicion for. And that really comes down to the I'm an epidemiologist, so it comes down to the the real crunch of this paper in that actually in order to get a high positive predictive value on any, on any test, so if you test an animal and it comes back positive, in order to get a high positive predictive value, which essentially says, okay, if it tests positive, what is the likelihood that it truly is positive? What you need is a high prevalence of the condition you're looking for in the population. And we know that there are far too many lateral condylar fractures uh, in the racehorse population, but there's certainly no way you'd call it a high prevalence. Um, you, t- you, need, you need a prevalence you know, that's much, much higher than the half percent, one percent of the population that end up with lateral condylar fractures. Um, so the key really is to, um, if it's going to be used as a screening tool, this is almost like it used, should be the second test in a series of tests. The first test has to be the, a test that is very good at removing true negative animals, so a highly sensitive test, so that you then only put these uh, horses through this MR screening uh, for which you have a very high suspicion that they're likely to be positive. And essentially what you do there is you artificially increase the prevalence of the condition, thus Mm -hmm. increasing the positive predictive value of anything that comes back positive. So do you have a take home message for us? Uh, there are. I mean, I think that, as expected, there are clear differences in the bones, which was really nice. I think the, it's most easily uh, demonstrated by the graphic on, on page three, where you see the clear difference. Um, uh, it's important that we've demonstrated that there are clearly detectable uh, differences using the appropriate imaging modality. Um, and as I said, I think that the take home at the moment is that, you know, it is clearly difficult to turn into a, a screening tool. We need that pretest that can remove the true negatives. Um, however, I think it does have use in a clinical setting and, and it certainly confirms other findings. And in my view, um, I think it should provide further impetus to those interested in biomarkers or genetic tests, uh, which I'm sure will come along in the next 10, 15 years that will be able to uh, rule out those truly negative animals. So it's, we're looking for a test, a, a first test that is cheap, easy to do, um, that can essentially rule out those negative animals, um, truly negative animals, and end up with a, a population with a much higher prevalence of the of lateral condylar fracture that then could go through this screening tool. Uh, and if you identify horses with uh, deep, uh, uh, a very uh, high amount of uh, dense subchondral bone at the particular sites, then you'd want to modify their training regime regimens in particular ways to then identify whether uh, you can modify the, the depth of that dense subchondral bone. I think the final thing we'd say is that um, Clearly, as I said at the beginning, this is kind of a snapshot. In an ideal world, if we had a very large population of animals, uh, a lot of money, we'd be setting up a longitudinal study to monitor horses maybe once every three months, do an MRI on them once every three months, and actually monitor the change in individual animals as they go through different training training regimens, which would be the sort of the gold standard study. Well, Tim, thanks for giving us some of your time today. That's all right. Dr. Sarah Plevin is a partner at the Florida Equine Veterinary Associates in the USA.
and is also an equine sports medicine diplomat. She'll be discussing her most recent paper, which has been published in the September edition of EVJ, and this is titled Association Between Sesamoiditis, Subclinical Ultrasonographic Suspensory Ligament Branch Change, and Subsequent Clinical Injury in Yearling Thoroughbreds. Hi Sarah, thanks for joining us from what I can imagine is a very sunny Florida. Um, yeah. In 2014, you published two studies in EVJ regarding sesamoiditis in yearling thoroughbreds, one looking at the radiographic signs of sesamoiditis and the association with suspensory ligament branch injury, and the second investigating the effects of insertional suspensory ligament branch dysmitis on racing performance. So could you tell us a little about what you concluded from these studies and why this has led on to investigating the association between sesamoiditis, subclinical ultrasonographic changes within the suspensory ligament branch and subsequent progression to suspensory ligament branch injury in yearling thoroughbreds? Yes, so we completed the two studies in 2014. Um, the first investigated if there was a relationship between sesamoiditis and suspensory ligament branch injury in a population of juvenile thoroughbreds. Um, and we found that significant cases of sesamoiditis were linked to the development of suspensory ligament branch injury. In fact, horses in that study with significant sesamoiditis were around five times more likely to develop uh, branch injury within their first year of training. Uh, this paper also highlighted the fact that the grading scale used when evaluating sesamoiditis is very important. We graded sesamoids uh, using three different scales and only found a relationship to exist between sesamoiditis and branch injury when using the scale devised by Spike Pierce in 2003. Um, the second study, <coughs> excuse me, we completed in 2014 demonstrated the importance of suspensory ligament branch injury by determining that it did in fact cause a decrease in racing performance as two-year-olds with mild, mild cases being able to perform equally uh, to their controls by their three-year-old year, whereas more severe cases demonstrated reduced ability as three-year-olds also. Interestingly, our findings related to sesamoiditis and um, suspensory disease tied in well to what had already been reported by Spike Pierce in 2003 regarding sesamoiditis and racing ability. Um, where she demonstrated that horses with significant sesamoiditis had a decrease in racing performance. So to kind of summarize, um, Spike Pierce had demonstrated that significant sesamoiditis could lead to a decrease in racing performance. And we then demonstrated that significant sesamoiditis was linked to the development of branch injury and that suspensory ligament branch injury could lead to a decrease in racing performance. So it was apparent by this stage that the triad of, you know, sesamoiditis, branch injury and reduced performance were all um, related. Uh, but it, it still kind of felt like a piece of the puzzle was missing. Uh, and now because of the intimate relationship between the proximal sesamoid bones um, and the branch insertions, and because of the etiopathogenesis of sesamoiditis, um, which is generally defined as inflammation, at the interface between the proximal sesamoid bone and the branch insertion, um, it really seemed intuitive to us that there may be an earlier link between the two conditions of sesamoiditis and branch injury. And we were 
especially interested to determine if clinical branch injury started off as subclinical branch change and what, if any, the relationship was between subclinical branch change and sesamoiditis. Um, specifically, we wanted to see if horses with significant sesamoiditis had changes in their corresponding branches prior to them becoming clinical. Um, and ultimately, I think we were hoping to try and find reliable markers that would enable identification of at-risk horses um, prior to clinical injury. So what did you hypothesize from all this? So our hypotheses uh, were that untrained yearlings with radiographic evidence of significant sesamoiditis would be more likely to have ultrasonographic findings of suspensory ligament branch change and that horses with the combination of concurrent significant sesamoiditis and um, subclinical branch change would be more likely to develop clinical suspensory ligament branch injury with training. So could you give us an overview of your study design and um, tell us what your inclusion criteria were? Yes. So um, this was a prospective uh, observational pilot study. All horses were located at a single training facility um, under the direction of one trainer. And at the start of the study, all horses underwent radiographic and ultrasonographic examinations of their forelimb, proximal sesamoid bone and suspensory ligament branch pairs or units, as we called them. Um, horses were then observed for evidence of clinical branch injury from the start of their training careers in September 2013 until the end of June 2014. The trainer was blinded to the results of all imaging throughout the study. Um, after initial imaging evaluation, sesamoid and suspensory ligament branch units were only re-imaged if the horse demonstrated clinical signs of branch injury. Um, and clinical injury, for the purposes of this paper, was defined as the presence of palpable pain and or avoidance response to direct palpation, visible swelling or palpable thickening of a branch um, with or without lameness. And diagnosis was confirmed using ultrasound and by diagnostic analgesia when necessary. Um, to be eligible for this study, horses had to be homebred, and a homebred meaning a horse that had never been selected for at sale or public auction. Inclusion of such horses was thought to be a potential cause of bias, as it was assumed that sale horses would have already been preferentially selected for their lack of sesamoiditis. Um, all horses also had to be free from clinical signs of suspensory branch injury, as well as other musculoskeletal injuries and conditions at the start of the study. OK, you used clinical radiological and ultrasonographic examinations. What grading scales did you use for each of these? Right. So the, you discussed um, a little bit, sorry, about the radiological one already but for the other two, maybe. Yeah, well, I mean, for the, like I said before, for the radiographic evaluation, um, we really used an adaptation of the scale used by Spike Pierce in 2003. Um, so grade zero would be no significant findings. Uh, grade one was any number of parallel regular vascular channels measuring less than two millimeters in di diameter. Uh, grade two was one divergent vascular channel measuring um, greater than or the same as two millimeters in diameter. And grade three were two or more divergent vascular channels uh, measuring 
two or more millimeters in diameter. Um, and then we had a grade four and five that uh, were uh, to do with abaxial lucency and abaxial border change. Um, for our ultrasound um, evaluations, the grading scale was taken directly from that used by Ramsen et al. when they investigated subclinical suspensory ligament branch change in mature racing thoroughbreds. So for this scale, grade zero uh, was no significant findings. Grade one were regions of mild hypoechogenicity and or subtle signs of a regular fiber pattern. Grade two were extensive regions of mild hypoechogenicity and or small focal disruptions to the fiber pattern. And grade three were regions of marked disruption to the fiber pattern with or without large anechoic core defects. Okay, so what patterns did you find emerging from these examinations? So we ended up with 50 horses that actually met our inclusion criteria. Um, we had 32 fillies and 18 colts, which gave us a total of 200 units to analyze. Um, we found the prevalence of significant sesamoiditis to be around 20%, and that was per sesamoid. And we found the prevalence of significant subclinical branch change to also be around 20%, and again, that was per branch. Um, a significant relationship was found to exist between the presence of significant sesamoiditis and significant subclinical branch change, with 28% uh, of sesamoids with significant sesamoiditis also demonstrating significant branch change. In fact, uh, we found that a sesamoid with significant sesamoiditis was around five times more likely to have significant subclinical branch change in the corresponding branch and that was compared to an entirely normal sesamoid. Uh, for the second part of the study, which focused on the identification of clinical cases of branch injury and the relationship between those cases and their associated subclinical findings pre-training, we had eight horses, which was 16% um, of the population that went on to develop clinical branch injury. And five of the eight, which was around 63% had shown coexisting evidence of significant changes pre-training. So we found that the odds of clinical injury developing in a unit with coexisting significant changes was significantly higher than the odds of a completely normal unit developing clinical injury. So only, as you mentioned earlier, earlier only those horses with grade two or three um, on your ultrasonographic grading scale were considered to have subclinical suspensory ligament branch injury. So could you tell us why horses with grade one findings, which um, included regions of mild hypoechogenicity and or subtle signs of irregular fibre pattern, why they were considered normal in this study? Okay, so um, we actually classed um, grade one um, findings as non-significant and um, we only a, a branch insertion was only classed as normal if the ligament had complete homogeneous echogenicity and parallel regular fiber pattern um, but like I previously um, kind of went over our grading scale was taken um, directly from that used by Ramsen et al um, and as nobody had previously looked at subclinical branch change in a population of juvenile branches 
we decided to use Ramson's previously published scale and assign significance to grades two and above as he had recommended. Um, and these were grades um, that were considered to include findings that would be thought of as clinically significant in practice. Uh, grade one findings were classed as non-significant, again, based on Ramson's paper, where he suggested um, such irregularities may not necessarily represent pathology, but maybe due to imaging artifacts such as um, off-incidence acquisition and defects in limb preparation, all of which obviously could be responsible for mild abnormalities in static images. We um, considered that these slight deviations from a normal ligament would equally apply in our population and therefore class grade one as non-significant also. The grading for subclinical branch changes is definitely an area for future study, especially um, with juvenile branches. Uh, we do think that aside from the slight deviations due to image artifacts, there, are, there is probably a range of normal that has to be considered when evaluating immature ligaments. Uh, in general, though, we were happy with the grading scale um, for the purposes of this study. Our results definitely seem to validate the use of this classification system by demonstrating a clear relationship between the presence of significant sesamoiditis, excuse me, significant subclinical branch change, um, sesamoiditis, and the subsequent development of branch injury. Okay, and as again, as you mentioned earlier, the parallel vascular channels within the sesamoid bones um, classed as no more than two millimetres wide were considered normal radiological findings, and those diverging, becoming wider, um, and increasing in number were considered pathological. Can you tell us a little bit about the proposed pathological etiology behind these findings? Um, yeah, this is a good question because um, there's, there's no really good answer for it at this point, I don't think. Um, but we, we, we classed um, divergent channels as significant based on, like I said, based on the paper by um, Spike Pierce, where she'd shown that um, sesamoids with divergent channels did affect racing performance. Um, but it, I think it is considered that in the healthy sesamoid, the blood supply from the palmar arteries enters the abaxial surface of the proximal sesamoid bones, um, obviously within the suspensory uh, branch insertion, and through radiologically visible channels. And these channels, if present, are normally parallel. So in cases with sesamoiditis, um, it is proposed that local inflammation changes the vascularity, resulting in wider divergent channels, which can be identified radiographically. And it's thought that an increase in the number of these enlarged vascular channels uh, indicates a progressive increase in the pathology. So from this study and from your results, how would you recommend monitoring a yearling with radiological findings of significant sesamoiditis and significant subclinical suspensory ligament branch change? So there is obviously nothing published regarding um, how to monitor these horses at this point. But typically, we recommend that a yearling with coexisting significant changes be serially monitored ultrasonographically, usually every 30 to 45 days. Um, we don't typically monitor radiographically as often. 
as a lot of times the radiographs won't change drastically and obviously they lag behind real time. Um, we will evaluate physically, uh, usually weekly, meaning um, a palpation of the ligaments and a lameness evaluation, which usually entails jogging the horse in hand on a hard surface. We also have the trainer evaluate these same parameters daily. Um, and we're lucky because at our, our race barns, all horses are physically inspected and jogged in hand prior to training each morning. So um, there's pretty intense uh, evaluation of these horses. Have you changed the management recommendations you give to trainers after this study or are they similar to what was done before? We have changed them slightly. Um, um, we typically recommend that these horses undergo braking a little later than usual. And once broken, we give them around 30 days off, meaning turnout, and then bring them back very slowly. Um, once in full training at each graduation to a new speed or new level, we um, ultrasound after around two weeks of being at that new new level or sooner if indicated. So, for example, if the horse is going from jog to canter or canter to speed work, we would monitor them two weeks after that increase in speed. Um, and we're wanting to obviously make sure that the ultrasound images have not changed um, or, or started to deteriorate. Um, if we do observe a difference, we almost treat these horses as you would a rehab case in that if we were cantering, uh, we will back them down to jogging for 30 days and just decrease that um, speed level. And this is really an area we're wanting to investigate in further studies to try and follow these horses with coexisting significant changes and see if manage, management changes and different training re regimes can actually prevent clinical injury. Anecdotally, not, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say, are there plans to carry out this study? Yes, yes. Good. We haven't started it yet, but we do have plans to, to do this. It, it, for us, it's um, uh, an actual follow-on from this paper, which has obviously told us that we do um, have these indicators, and now we need to see if we can, once we find these markers, if we can do something to prevent clinical injury developing by changing the management. Uh, I would say anecdotally, this slow approach and intense evaluation that I just described does seem to reduce the likelihood of clinical injury. Um, however, the very severe cases, so you know, like a grade three sesamoiditis and a grade three subclinical branch change, seem to go on and develop injury regardless. Uh, we've only had a handful of cases um, that I would class as severe, but those cases, um, even with the altered management, have gone on to develop clinical injury. So what would your ultimate take home message be for us? So I think there were a few main points. Um, firstly, that significant sesamoiditis and significant subclinical branch change do seem to be common findings in this population anyway. And a relationship does seem to exist between the two conditions. So horses with significant sesamoiditis are more likely to have significant subclinical branch change in the corresponding branch. Additionally, the presence of coexisting significant changes in the same unit pre-training does seem to increase the likelihood for future development of suspensory ligament branch injury. 
And I think that the important point here is that it seems to be the presence of the combined significant changes pre-training that is the most accurate predictor of injury, as opposed to either finding alone. The presence of both these findings together in the same unit probably just indicates a level of severity that makes clinical injury um, most likely. But we do feel that it is the presence of both these findings that most likely offers um, the greatest opportunity for intervention of clinic and, and prevention of clinical injury. Ultimately, I think the most practical uh, take home message from this study is that we recommend ultrasound examination of any suspensory ligament branch attached to a sesamoid demonstrating a significant or severe level of sesamoiditis on radiographs. Um, I think it's also very important uh, to note here that we should be very careful about extrapolating um, from the clinical part of this study anyway. The number of clinical cases was very low, just eight, and the number of those horses um, with coexisting significant changes pre-training was even lower, just five. So although obviously relationships found were statistically significant, the confidence intervals were, were wide. Um, so basically, yes, if a horse has coexisting significant changes pre-training, it is statistically more likely to develop injury. But we definitely need much larger studies before assigning a number to this. Um, and I also think it should be mentioned uh, that because not all sesamoid units with coexisting significant changes developed clinical injury, and conversely, as some horses with no changes pre-training, that was three out of the eight horses that went on to develop clinical injury, it, it obviously remains very difficult to predict exactly which horses will succumb to clinical injury. And for these reasons, we really do feel that this information should be used more to help identify at-risk horses so they can be managed appropriately, as opposed to using it as um, some sort of screening tool for horse selection at sales, as the numbers are just far too low to do that reliably at this point. Okay, well, Sarah, thank you very much for giving up some of your time today to talk us through your study. Thank you. Thanks again for listening and make sure you tune in for our December edition.